Amen. Well, it's good to be with you, church, as we come again to God and His Word, and we listen to what He is saying to us about Himself, about ourselves, and how we're to follow Him in this world. When my dad uh, was nine years old, he and his family had finished church on Sunday, and they decided to go for a Sunday afternoon drive. It was a small town in Nebraska, and so they went out in the country roads just to enjoy the, the beautiful day. And they left the house that, that afternoon having no idea what that afternoon had in store for them. Because in a matter of moments, a car came out of nowhere at 70 mile an hour down the country road and T-boned their car, blindsiding them. My grandma, Nora, died upon impact. My dad, nine years old, was launched from the vehicle and was left unconscious with a broken arm in the ditch. My, my aunt, Nora, survived the accident, was transported to the hospital, but seven hours after my dad woke up in the hospital, he would watch her die right before him. That car accident changed my dad's life, my grandfather's life forever. It'd be one thing if the car accident was just an accident, but in retrospect, it was something that could have been avoided. Come to find out the driver who hit them was being reckless. That morning, as a teenager, he'd gotten into a fight with his dad. His dad said he couldn't go out. In his anger, he stormed off, got in the car, put the pedal to the metal, and just flew down the road, blinded by his rage. It'd be one thing if my dad did not believe in God. Because then you could look at that event and say, well, that was just a fluke accident. One of the things that just happens. But my dad does believe in God. And my dad believes that God is sovereign in control over all things, including car accidents. And of all the places that car could have been, God could have stopped the car from hitting their car. He could have prevented it. But he didn't. What do you do with that? When people are crushed by life's tragedies, how are we to respond? How are we to think? What do we do when God's plan doesn't make sense? When it hurts? What do we do when we're not sure that we like what God is doing? Well, thankfully... The Bible, in the Bible, God speaks to us. And he doesn't just give us religious cliches. He speaks life-giving words into all of life's circumstances, including the very dark scenarios that we face in our life. And that's what we want to consider this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And as I mentioned last week, if you're not sure where Habakkuk is, uh, just start where the New Testament begins, the book of Matthew. Go back a couple of books. It's one of the last books in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. 
Now, we started our study in the book of Habakkuk last week. We looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. But let me try to remind you where we're at in the book. Habakkuk was a prophet. A prophet is somebody who speaks a message from God to others, to his people. And Habakkuk was a prophet who ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and so he was, he was there probably ministering in the late 7th century B.C., and at that point in, in history, uh, Judah was deteriorating morally. They had, they, they had fallen into idolatry and violence and strife and injustice. And so last week, we, we, see, we see the prophet Habakkuk looking out at God's people and seeing this rampant wickedness, and he's bothered by it. And he asks God to do something about the wickedness, not out there, but in the house of God, in among his people. And as we found, God's answer was that he was raising up the Babylonians to discipline Judah. The problem is Babylon was wicked. They were ruthless. Habakkuk wants justice. He wants the people of God cleaned up, but not this way. God's plan to use a wicked, ruthless Babylon just didn't make sense to him. And so he was confused. He was disoriented. Friends, think about it this way. If, if you've ever been in a, a boat in the middle of a lake or an ocean, and you find yourself in the middle of a storm with waves crashing up against the side and, and wind whipping around really strongly, and, 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 it, and, and the, the boat begins to take on water, and, and the wind's so strong it, it's, threatening, it's threatening to capsize the boat, in that moment of the storm, you feel helpless. It, it, it can be terrifying. And what you know that boat needs in that moment is an anchor. Because if, if there's no anchor to hold that boat steady, it's going to be capsized. In the same way, pain and sorrow and injustice and, and, and conflict can leave us feeling like that boat in the middle of the sto- storm. There are moments in life when tragedy hits and it feels like we're about to sink. We're about to go under. And as Habakkuk, the prophet, wrestles with the problem of evil, as he wrestles with these difficult questions, he provides an example for us to follow. So where does he start? Where do we start? Point number one. Anchor your hope in the truth of of God's character. That's what we're going to see Habakkuk doing in verses 12 through 17, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Anchor your hope in the truth of God's character. Look down with me at God's word in chapter 1, verse 12. This is what the prophet says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for a proof. You who are of pure eyes that can, that, 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 than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net? and mercilessly killing nations forever? All right, so we see right away, he's disorienting, he's hurting, he's, he's, he's confused, and he's anchoring his hope in the truth of God's character. What are the truths of God's character he sets his anchor in? Well, first in verse 12, the prophet remembers that God is from everlasting, he says. In other words, God is eternal, God has no beginning. God has no end. There's never a time when God did not exist. There's never going to be a time when God does not exist. He is from everlasting. Okay, but what does that have to do with the issue at hand? I think part of it is a a reminder that God stands above history. For us, what happens tomorrow is unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so the events of tomorrow are in some sense surprising. But God is not surprised by tomorrow. He's not surprised by the events in history. As J.I. Packer once wrote, he said, history is his story. So the prophet Well, he didn't see Babylon as the plan. He didn't see Babylon coming. And so when God tells him that's what he's going to do, the prophet is shocked. But God, who's writing history, who's sovereign over history, God is immune from all panic. Long ago, God in his infinite wisdom planned this event. Now, in Habakkuk's day, he's bringing it to pass, and therefore he is using it for his good and sovereign purposes. A a parallel of this comforting truth is found in, in the prophet Isaiah, chapters 36 and 37. And friends, I'd encourage you to take some time this afternoon to read Isaiah 36 and 37. Because what you'll see is the king Hezekiah, his, his faith begins to falter because in his instance, Assyria is coming in to wipe out Judah, and he's not sure what's going to happen next. And yet God's word comes to him and says, have you not heard, Hezekiah, that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. He's saying to Hezekiah, calm down. I've got this. I planned it long ago. I am the eternal God. And Habakkuk, like Hezekiah, saw and was reminded that God is in control because he is the eternal God. He continues on in verse 1 saying, O Lord, my God, that capital L-O-R-D is a reminder that he is the covenant God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. What he's remembering here about God is that God long ago made a promise to Abraham and his descendants. You can see that in Genesis 12. That his descendants would be his people forever. But Hezekiah looks around and he realizes that God's people had 
been stubborn and stiff-necked and unfaithful for a long time, and now he knows that Babylon is coming. Babylon, who wiped out the world power of Assyria. Babylon, who wiped out Egypt. Nations that once were thought to be immovable were gone because of Babylon. And now Babylon was knocking at their door because God sent Babylon. So Hezekiah looks at the circumstances, and, and, and what he sees looks like the end for the people of God. If they wiped out Assyria, if they wiped out Egypt, they're done. There's no hope for little old Judah. But God had made a promise long ago. And God is not like us. God is the Holy One. He's the promise-keeping God. He is faithful. And so Habakkuk reminds himself and the people of God that God will keep his promise to his people. God will not change his mind. He will not turn his back on his people. He will keep his promise. That's why the prophet says what he does when he says, my God, my Holy One. It's not their God, it's my God. There's nothing that can then break the bond that exists between God and his people when he's made you his people. When he's adopted you as his child, you will be his child forever. That's why the prophet is able to say, man, this doesn't make sense, but we shall not die. How? Because God is faithful to his promises. As the prophet wrestles with difficult questions about what God is doing, he begins by saying to himself, I'm going to start with what I know to be true. i got a lot of questions, but I'm going to begin with what I know to be true. The things that God has revealed about himself in his word. In other words, Habakkuk sets his anchor of hope in the truths of God's character. Truth that God has revealed in his word. So yes, the waves and the winds of doubts and discouragements and questions and world events may come, but the anchor will hold. Verse 12. He goes on, keeps thinking about who God is. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. To ordain means to appoint. God is setting the schedule. Again, The prophet is recognizing God's sovereignty, God's being in control. You have ordained them, he says. You've appointed them. Yes, Babylon may be brutal. They may be terrifying. They may be wicked. But as Proverbs 16.4 says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Friends, God's sovereignty is not just fall short of the wicked and then they're kind of free to do whatever they want. No, God's sovereignty extends over all things. He is righteous. He is not culpable. He is not blamable. We cannot blame him for wickedness. He does what's right all the time. And yet his sovereignty extends even over the wicked, including the nation of Babylon. And that makes all the difference. God's limitless sovereignty makes all the difference for for Habakkuk and for us in difficult times. Friends, if God is not sovereign, then Babylon is like meeting a thug with a knife in a dark alley who's out to kill you. 
Not good. But if God is sovereign, then even a wicked nation like Babylon becomes a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. It cuts. The scalpel cuts, but not to kill. In the hands of a loving and good surgeon, that scalpel cuts to give life. And that's possible when God is sovereign. That's why the prophet says at the end of verse 12, You, O rock, have established them for reproof. God is his rock. There's winds, there's waves, there's storms, but he will not be capsized because God is his rock. God is this certain and unchanging one that God's people can rely upon and set the anchor of their hope upon. There may be things that don't make sense. There may be unanswered questions, but he will start by clinging to the truth that is certain about God. That's where he starts, and that's where we should start. By fixing our minds, our hearts, our, the anchor of our hope on this is true about God. I'm putting a stake in the ground. I know this is true about God because God has revealed it. Let's start there. And then with that rock to stand upon, Habakkuk then moves forward with his difficult questions. Questions that he can't wrap his mind around. Look, look again at verse 13. He begins saying, You who are of pure eyes that, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, so he knows that God is holy, that God is pure, that God is not indifferent to evil. He will not tolerate evil. He knows that to be true about God. But it's that truth about God that creates the tension in the second half of verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors then and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see what he's wrestling with? God, I know that you're holy. I know that you're good. Then why are you doing this? Don't you see the, the wickedness of Babylon? Think of it this way. If, if, if you have a, a white tablecloth that you use, that you use for Christmas, right? And, then, and somebody spills grape juice all over the, the white, that white tablecloth. Well, you want to clean it off. You want to get the stain out. And so you take it to the dry cleaners. Well, if, the, if you go to the dry cleaners, you drop it off, and you see the dry cleaner throw your white tablecloth into the septic tank, into the sewer, what would you say? You'd say, hold on. No, 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 no. Don't do that. You're going to ruin the tablecloth. What are you doing? That's kind of what Habakkuk's wrestling with. Habakkuk wants the stain of sin removed from the people of God in Judah. But God's plan to use the wicked, this ruthless nation, doesn't make sense to him. He's afraid that, that Judah will be ruined in the process. Last week we noted that the Hebrew word for the wicked refers to those who disadvantage others to advantage themselves. And the Hebrew term for the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. So the, the, one, of the, one of the ideas of, of the difference between the righteous and the wicked is selflessness or self-centeredness. So last week when Habakkuk groaned about how wicked the people of God had become, that was true. 
But in verse 13, the wicked are now the Babylonians. And the man more righteous than he, in verse 13, is referring to Judah. Well, I thought, I thought Judah was wicked. Now he's calling the Judah more righteous than he. What, what's he talking about? Well, there's a couple of options. The prophet could be referring to a remnant of believers that in Judah that had not fallen into the idolatry and the wickedness, and that's who he's referring to, that remnant who is righteous. And that's, that's possible. That that's, might be what he's meaning. Or he could just be saying, yes, Judah is wicked. I talked about that earlier in chapter 1. They are violent. But compared to Babylon, they're more righteous. Babylon's in a whole other category of wickedness. Both those are options that we could think about when it comes to interpreting that verse. But whatever verse 13 is saying, I think we should be bothered, we should be most bothered by the wickedness that exists among the people of God. People who know God, have a relationship with him, who have his word, who are indwelt by his spirit. That's what we should be most bothered about because we as the people of God should be different. And sure enough, that's what was bothering the prophet. That's why he asked God to correct the sin, to discipline, to cleanse Judah from their sin in verses 2 and 4, through 4 in chapter 1. But again, when he hears about God's plan to use Babylon, he's troubled. By the end of verse 13, the prophet, his concern is how Babylon will likely swallow up Judah. When you swallow up something, it's all gone, right? Swallowing up is what happened to the Egyptian army in the Red Sea when the Red Sea collapsed on them. The point is, there were no survivors. They were wiped out. It was utter annihilation. And so as Habakkuk sees this Babylonian army coming in, he's concerned that they're going to be annihilated. They're going to be swallowed up, wiped off the face of the planet. He knows God's made his promises, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. In other words, it's the prophet's good theology that God is faithful that makes God's plan to use Babylon confusing. It seems, by what he can see, that God's about to give up on his people. And he goes on to describe what the Babylonians are going to do. He, he, he reminds God, that God, these are the Babylonians. Look at verse 14. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. That's referring to Babylon. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so what, what he's doing is he's using a metaphor of a fisherman to describe the violence of the Babylonians. But that violence is not just a metaphor, it's actually literal as well. The Babylonians adopted the Assyrian method that when they would capture a people, they would actually literally put a hook to the bottom of your lip, the tender part of your lip, and they would line up the people with a, with a string, with a hook in your lip, and they would yank you along with that hook in your lip to make sure that you did what they asked you to. It's not just metaphorical, it's also literal. And the prophet's saying to God, God, look, I know we need correction, but these are the bad guys. And you're just going to stand by and watch these people snatch up your people like a bunch of fish? And notice the result of the Babylonians' violence at the end of verse 15. He says, so he, Babylon, 
rejoices and is glad. He, he takes a sick pleasure in his violence. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So he, 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 he's worshiping his strength. That's what we saw last week in verse 11, that his God is his might. And now he's making sacrifices to the instruments of his might that makes him luxur- live in luxury. And just put, put verse 16 together. The wicked are rejoicing. The wicked are glad. The, the wicked live in luxury. The wicked are rich. Meanwhile, the righteous suffer. Habakkuk's wrestling with that. That's, that. Doesn't that seem backwards, Lord? What are you doing? Friends, when you're troubled, confused by God's providence, when life falls apart and it doesn't make sense, where do you begin? What's the first thing you do? Do you turn on the news? Do you turn to social media for the latest update, looking for answers to make sense of what's going on? Do you shut down, curl up in a fetal position because it's so overwhelming? Do you become angry, bitter? Church, this last year, 2020, has given us plenty of things that leave us asking, God, where are you in this? What are you doing? Where are you at? And then 2020 came to a close, and six days into 2021, we saw a violent mob climbing the walls of our nation's capital that left five people dead. What do we do? What do we do? We begin here by putting a stake in the ground with the things that we know for sure. We anchor our hope in the truth of God's unchanging character. That he's good. That he's sovereign. That he is the one in control of all things, that history is his story. We look to him. Friends, one application for us here, it has to do with and how we actually care for each other in times like this as a church. Last week, we celebrated the Lord's Supper, and before we did, we actually renewed our covenant as a church together And one of the things we say in our church covenant is we promise to walk together in Christian love by faithfully caring for, watching over, and admonishing one another as occasions may require. One of the ways that we do that is by every week gathering, whether online or in person, and we we encourage each other. We remind each other this is true about God. Don't forget that. And And then Monday through Saturday, we call each other up. 
we, 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 we see each other and we remind each other on Monday through Saturday, this is who God is. Don't forget. This is certain. And the other thing we, we, we realize about how we care for each other this way is we realize that it's okay. Church, it's okay for a Christian to be sad. There are some events in life that call for our sadness, and it's appropriate to grieve. It's okay for us as Christians to wrestle like Habakkuk with life's tough questions and life's tough realities. It's okay, church, to not be okay sometimes. Do you know that? So as we seek to care for each other, especially in life's confusing events, let's make room to grieve when that's necessary. Let's make room for us to cry out to God, what what are you doing? And to do that together. You know why? Because the anchor will hold. The anchor will hold, church. You may be a Christian struggling with doubt. You may be weary from fighting for faith. And this morning you're asking God, how long do I have to keep fighting for faith. I'm tired. You may be unable to shake the grief and the emptiness that comes from having lost a loved one, either recently or a long time ago. It just won't leave. Or it might be the painful process of learning to live together as a church in genuine love and real, real unity. That's hard sometimes. And we have experienced some of those pains this past year. It's been hard. But friends, they are growing pains. I got an 8 and 11-year-old boy, and they're growing, and they often talk about their legs hurting. But that's, that's a sign of health. Growing pains hurt, but they're part of the process. They're a sign of life. Now, as we read through Habakkuk, by the time we get to chapter 3, we're going to see Habakkuk praising God. We're going to see Habakkuk rejoicing. But we can't skip ahead to the good part in chapter 3. We have to walk through chapter 1 and chapter 2 because for Habakkuk it was a process and it's also a process for us. Friends, Christian joy is not born by religious cliches. Christian joy comes from God. It comes from walking with Him. Even the hard times. It comes from walking together in the hard times. And I just want to say, as one of your pastors, as I look at what God has been doing in our church this past year, there's been times when it's been painful. But I am thankful. I love my church family more than I ever have. I love you. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for this family. And I pray that we continue to go through this together so that none of us miss out on the good that God is doing. Let's stay engaged. Let's have the hard conversations. Let's, let's have the awkward conversations. Let's, let's, let's endure and, and keep going even with the growing pains because they're growing pains. Church, each Sunday we come together, we bring a, a mix of problems, right? What you're struggling with, might not be what I'm struggling with. What I'm struggling with might not be what you're struggling with. But our starting point is the same. We, 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 we come to anchor our hope in the truth of God's character. And with that sure footing, we then can wrestle with the tough realities of life.
with that sure footing of who God is, we're able to walk by faith, not by sight. That's our second point this morning, our second and last point. Point number two, walk by faith, not by sight. And we're going to see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So, 1, 12 through 17, Habakkuk's responding to God's plan for Babylon. He's remembering who God is. He's wrestling. Then look at verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself in the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So, He's wrestling, and the prophet comes to this place where he he stops and he listens. The the metaphor that he's using here of a watchman is the idea of this this soldier who would stand on the city gates, and he he would watch intently on the horizon for any enemy who would come to attack the city. He's, He's watching. He's intent. He's waiting. He's in the lookout. And as the prophet, that's how Habakkuk sees himself as he waits on God. He's troubled, he's confused, he's hurting, he's brought his complaint to God. And he's not the only one in Judah with, with this, this question about God's plan. Who, he's not the only one in Judah who's going to be troubled by God's plan. And so when the, when the prophet says, I'm waiting to see what I will answer, he's, he's actually referring to, what am I going to tell people when they bring their question to me about what God's up to? I don't know what I'm going to say to them. And so he waits on God. And I think what Habakkuk does here is instructive for us again, too. Notice, he's got a question. He's got a perplexing thing that looks like a paradox to him. He doesn't know what to do with it. But he doesn't speculate. He doesn't guess. He doesn't rely on his own wisdom. He doesn't just invent a message that will make the people of Judah like him more. What does he do? Verse 1. I will look to see what God will say to me. I will wait for God. I will wait for what God's word is saying. And, and listen, church, this is, not, this is not passive waiting. The Hebrew word for look out, I will look out to see, the Hebrew word for that involves the idea of a soldier carrying out uh, the, the process of monitoring. He's looking. He's straining his neck to see if there's any, anybody coming on the horizon. That's what, that's what Habakkuk's doing. So friends, when we talk about, as Christians, when we talk about walking by faith and not by sight, don't misunderstand that. Walking by faith does not mean turning your brain off. It does not mean sticking your head in the sand on tough questions with life. Habakkuk is wrestling. Habakkuk is thinking. He's using his mind that God has given him. But he does not go beyond God's word. Friends, I think sometimes we think if we just have good theology, all the, all the, the tension will go away. But I want us to notice that it's actually having good theology that creates the tension for Habakkuk. The problem of evil exists because our good theology. The problem of evil exists because we believe that God is good. We believe that God is sovereign. And we believe in the reality of evil. How do we put those things together? That's the problem of evil. And I think it's good for us to pause here and just remember 
something from church history. Many of the heresies that have popped up in church history throughout the years happen because somebody is wrestling with a paradox about who God is or what he's doing, and they don't know what to do. They don't like the the tension in their mind, and so they end up resolving the issue by going beyond what God is saying in his word or by ignoring something that God is saying in his word. So, for instance, how can God's sovereignty and human responsibility coexist? That's a tough question. It's a question that Christians have wrestled with for thousands of years. On the 5th century, early 5th century, a man named Pelagius solved the problem. And he did it by denying the Bible's teaching on original sin. Tension resolved, but you lop off part of the Bible. You can't do that. More recently, open theists tried to get God off the hook. Bad things happen. If God's sovereign, is he responsible? Well, they, open theists, try to get God off the hook by actually limiting God's sovereignty or limiting God's knowledge. Well, he didn't know this was going to happen. He's not in control over all things. God's off the hook, but now we've lopped off part of the Bible that talks about God's sovereignty over all things, his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. The tension's resolved, but you have a different God. You don't have the God of the Bible. You have a God that you've made up in your mind. Christians must wrestle. We must think. But again, I'm going to say it, church. We must never go beyond God's word. We can't ignore what God's word says, nor can we go beyond what God's word reveals. Like a watchman, we are called to follow Habakkuk's example of straining at every level of our intellect to understand what God is saying in his word. Be the watchman. And be okay with not knowing some things. (laughs) If God's word does not tell us, we need to be okay with that. Let me give you an example. How, do we, how does the Bible talk about divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Well, if we go to the book of Romans, the apostle Paul wrestles with that. And in chapter 9, Romans 9, he's wrestling with the, the sovereignty of God over all things. And then we get to chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, he's, he's acknowledging human responsibility. So you have God's sovereignty in Romans 9, you have human responsibility in Romans 10. But Paul doesn't close his argument in chapter 11 by saying, There! I've explained everything. He doesn't say that. Romans 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He doesn't lop off God's sovereignty. He doesn't lop off human responsibility. He says they're both true. How do they fit together? I don't know. Praise God. (laughs) That's a good model for us too, church. Habakkuk is waiting. He's waiting. He's standing on the watch post. He's he's searching God's word. He's waiting on God's answer for him as a prophet. We don't know how long, but then God answers him. On a side note, what's interesting, Job asks, God, what are you doing? And God never tells him. Habakkuk asks, what are you doing? And he does tell him. Get different responses sometimes. And what's his answer in verse 2? Verse 2, and the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. Now the idea of 
somebody um, taking the tablet with God's word and running it is actually the idea of a herald. He's saying, this is what God has said. This is what God has said. This is the news. This is the news. This is what God's answer is. Go and spread that around, right? So this was a message that was not just for Habakkuk. It was not just a private answer for the prophet. It was an answer for everybody, for the people of God. So he's told to write this down and spread the news. You know what's cool about that? Is that 2,600 years after this message was written down on a tablet, God is still declaring that answer to the people of God today. That was written down so that the folks at First Baptist could come together in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, and hear God's answer to help us navigate some of the painful, confusing realities in life. Praise God for that. And then God continues in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. So God's plan has its appointed time. And that reminds us that, again, he's in control of history. He's writing history. He does not just respond to history. He's writing history. He goes on to say, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God's plan as its appointed time. God sets the time, and his plan is hastening to its end. It's not just lollygagging around. It's hastening to the end. Well, what's the end that Habakkuk's talking about, that God's talking about to Habakkuk? Well, I think the immediate problem for Judah and the prophet was that Babylon was knocking at the door. They'd already wiped out Assyria, and it looked like Babylon was going to be wiped out next. But again, in Abraham, God made a promise to his people that they would be his people forever. God made that promise, and he would keep that promise. He would not say, well, plan A didn't work. Oops. God doesn't say oops. God had a plan, and he would keep his plan. He would work his plan, and he would bring that plan to an end. God, man's sin will not destroy God's plan. That's how, that's how in control God is. He makes a promise. He will not lie. He would use Babylon to discipline Judah and in 586, they'd be going to Babylonian exile. But we know from human history that by 539 B.C., Persia would be the next world power that come in. Persia would wipe out Babylon, and Darius, the king of Persia, would say, okay, okay, Judah, now you can go back home. Now you can go back home. God's plan has its appointed time. It will not delay. And what God is saying to Habakkuk and to the people here immediately is, this is not going to make sense to you right now, what I'm doing with Babylon. But I am working my plan. You have to trust me. You have to be patient. You have to wait for it. I know it looks like you're not going to make it. But I'm calling you to walk by faith, not by sight. And that brings us to verse 4, which perhaps is the heart of the whole book of Habakkuk. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. So you can, you can divide verse 4 into two parts, right? The first part is referring to most likely Babylon. And then, but, in contrast, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, this verse captures the heart 
of the book of Habakkuk. If you want to summarize the whole message of the book of Habakkuk is, it's this, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the good of others, the advantage of others. And in a world that is self-centered, in a world whose value is, says that your value is determined by competition and comparison, how can anyone afford to be selfless? If you, if you act selfless, if you, if you willingly disadvantage yourselves for the good of others, you're going to be crushed by this world. That's how it feels sometimes. So why would anyone do that? How can anyone do that? By faith. <laughs> by trusting God. By submitting to him. In contrast to the one who trusts God is the one who's puffed up. In other words, the one who's proud, who trusts themselves. So if, if faith submits to God in humble trust, pride opposes God in an effort to be their own God and to be their own ruler. And this has been our default position as people ever since Adam and Eve rejected God's rule and said, I got this. We'll be our own ruler. Ever since then, every one of us has been born in this world with pride as our default position. And notice what God says of them. He says, it, the proud soul, is not upright within him. You know what he's saying? He's saying the person who opposes God in their pride, who says, I can take on the creator of the universe and win, there's something not right with that person. There's something that's not upright in their soul. There, there's something that's broken in them that would actually let them live that way and actually think they can win. <laughs> Verse 5 then goes on to give us a description of the proud. Verse 5 says, Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects, all, and collects as his own all peoples. So it's clear that Babylon is the arrogant man in verses 4 and 5. But the arrogance of Babylon actually provides a picture for anyone who is at war with God because of their pride. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ... If you're joining us online and you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'm so glad. We are so glad that you joined us here today. <clears throat> but one of the sobering truths that God's word gives us is that left to ourselves in our sin, you are at war with God. And it's easy to hear that and assume, well, I'm not at war with God. <clears throat> I'm a pretty good person. So God and I are good. But there's no middle ground here. If you're not trusting God with your entire life, then you're proud. You're saying, I can do this myself. You are the person whose soul is puffed up. And so if the righteous live by faith, by trusting God, the wicked die because of pride. And, and take note of the description that's given of the arrogant man. He says the arrogant man is never at rest. The arrogant man never has enough. In other words, the description of the arrogant in verse 5 is that they're discontent. They're unsatisfied. You know why? Because God has put eternity in the hearts of every human being. 
We are not made for just the things of this world. We are created by God for God. And our soul is only satisfied when we come to know God and are in a relationship with him where we love him and trust him with our whole being. Anything else will leave us dissatisfied. Like we're missing something. And I think that actually explains the comment in verse 5 that wine is a traitor. Dissatisfied people often run to something like food or TV or sex or drugs or wine to escape, to numb the pain or to quiet the nagging reminder in their hearts that there's got to be something more than this. Friends, there is something more. And that something more is God. And God is calling on you, friend, to trust in him today. Well, how can I trust in him when I've got tough questions that don't have answers? Questions like, how can a good and sovereign God exist when there's so much evil in this world? What do I do with that? Well, if you keep reading in the Bible, by the time you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 37, we'll actually quote Habakkuk 2, verse 3. And what the New Testament is showing in Hebrews is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Habakkuk chapter 2. Jesus is the goal. He is the end that God's plan is hastening to. In other words, at the end of the day, God's answer to the problem of evil is Jesus. Which is good news. You see, when, like Habakkuk, we are bothered by the evil in this world... We cry out for justice. That's a good thing. We want God to hand out justice to the bad guys. But we need to remember that we also are the bad guys. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so when Habakkuk asks God, how can you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You know the one person in human history that that actually is true of? It's Jesus. We should ask God, how can you be silent when Jesus, your own son, the sinless son of God, willingly hung on the cross? How can you be silent? How can you forsake him? He did nothing wrong. What are you doing, God? And God's answer is, I'm doing it because I love you. I'm doing it because I'm holy and because I love you. The death and resurrection of Jesus is God's plan to deal with the wickedness of sin and at the same time uphold his righteousness, uphold his holiness, and make a way for us to be reconciled with him. The question remains for us, what are we going to do with that? Will we be proud? Will we be puffed up and try to do it ourselves? Will we be like the soul that dies, or will we humble ourselves? Will you humble yourself, turn from your sin, trust in Christ so that he can clothe you with his righteousness today? I pray that you trust in him. Church, when the bottom of your life drops out, when it looks like evil is winning and you are asking, God, where are you? Habakkuk reminds us that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you, read Habakkuk, if you read Hebrews Hebrews 11 this afternoon, you're going to meet heroes of the faith, 
like Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Rahab, people who lived with the assurance of things hoped for. They lived by faith. And one of the things to note in Hebrews 11 is that with each example of a person who walked by faith is that faith always leads to faithfulness. Faith leads to faithfulness. So it's not just that they believed God. Their belief led to something. Abraham went. Moses endured. Rahab welcomed. Faith led to faithfulness. And some of the heroes of the faith had a happy storybook ending that we all long for, right? But not all of them did. Some who trusted in God died in prison without ever seeing what God promised. Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Church, listen up. There are going to be times when this world disappoints us, frightens us, lets us down. But don't be bothered by that. We need to remember that we are strangers and exiles. We're not home yet. Don't live like this world is it. Just imagine that your family decided this afternoon, we're going to drive to Disney World. 12-hour drive from here to Disney World. You get in the car, you start driving. And in the car, the kids start to complaining. Man, this stinks. I thought Disney World would be a lot more fun than this. What would you say to your kids? <laughs> we're not there yet. This isn't Disney World. This is just the trip there. And we're almost there. So just be patient. Friends, there are going to be events, events like we saw this past week, that tempt us to panic. And if this world is our home, if our citizenship is in this earth and not in heaven, if this world is it, then we should panic. But this world isn't it. We're strangers and we're exiles. We're not home yet. God has promised a better home. He's promised to get us there. And it's this faith in God that leads to faithfulness as we wait. Sticking out in a difficult marriage. Fighting bitterness in the midst of chronic illness. Continuing to love and assume the best in people who make our life difficult. Continuing to pray and seek God in Scripture with other brothers and sisters, when weariness and doubts lurk in the shadows of our mind. Friends, even if times are strange, our mission as a church is the same. To love God. To love our neighbor. And like the herald in verse 2, to proclaim the good news. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So we keep going. Shortly after the, the car accident that my dad suffered, my grandpa brought my dad into the hospital room of the driver who had killed his sister and his mom. And in that hospital room, he and my grandfather looked at the man who just killed their two members of their family. And they said to him, we forgive you. Over the years, I've asked myself, how could my dad forgive the man who recklessly killed his sister and his mom? His life would never be the same. 
And I think it's because the, it's the fact that my dad has been humbled by God's grace. It's because though he deserved to be swallowed up by God's justice and forsaken, he came to understand that Christ died in his place so that he could be accepted. So how could he not trust God? How could he not forgive when he'd been forgiven so much more? And 61 years after the car accident, my dad, where my dad lost his mom and his sister, my dad is still trusting God to this day. And I've learned from him that you may not know how all the pieces fit together, but we know who God is, and we know how it ends. And that's enough. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. Let's pray together, church.